0: I'm sure that some of you have heard the word Manichaean before. It is often a word used for something that is strongly dualistic or lacks nuance. But some of you may also know that it was an ancient religion that flourished in the Middle East and in the Central Asian region particularly. In fact, Manichaeism was once one of the most widespread and popular religions in the world and has been called by scholars the first world religion. But not many people know too much about this faith tradition, so let's change that. Our information about the religion of Manichaeism is pretty sparse. Prior to the 20th century, all the information we had basically came from secondary sources. Um, You may have heard about Manichaeism, for example, from the writings of Augustine, one of the most famous early Christian theologians, who actually was a Manichaean before he converted to Christianity. There is also writings by later Muslim writers like al-Biruni, but none of these texts are very reliable because of their very polemical nature. Because all of these texts, especially those by Christian writers, are highly critical of Manichaeism and is polemical in the way that they are trying to discredit the religion in favor of Christianity as they understood it. But by the 20th century, archaeologists started to discover sites and documents that have helped us enormously in understanding this religion in a more direct way. Excavations in Central Asia, in the oasis of Turfan, or in Medinet Mahdi or Kellis in Egypt have uncovered texts or places of worship and other very valuable material. What emerges from these finds is a religion that is complex and unique and yet is strongly connected to other movements in these regions at the time. Okay, so let's get to it. What is or was Manichaeism? Let's start at the beginning. The beginning of this story centers around the religion's main figure and prophet, Mani. He was most likely born in 216 of the Common Era in a city close to the Tigris River, so it's close to modern-day Baghdad. This region was part of the larger Sasanian Persian Empire at the time, and was an incredibly multicultural and vibrant environment in terms of religion. It was a melting pot of different, both old and new emerging traditions. Zoroastrianism was of course very strong, as it was the kind of official religion, state religion of the Sasanian Empire, and of course had a huge influence. But we also find different Jewish groups, Mandaeans, and new movements that had formed around on the figure of Jesus of Nazareth, what we today know as Christianity. The Christians was not a unified group at this point, but consisted of many different individual movements, some of which were still very strongly connected to Judaism, while others were starting to increasingly separate from it. Um, there was also a strong presence of Buddhism at this time, especially in the Central Asian regions. So you can see there were many different religious movements. It was a very vibrant time. So Mani grew up in this kind of environment, this incredibly multi-religious, multicultural environment, and this would of course have a strong influence on his later religious teachings. He has sometimes been portrayed as a Persian prophet and thus being foreign to the Judeo-Christian or Abrahamic framework, but this is actually highly inaccurate. In fact, for the first two decades of his life, following in his father's footsteps, Mani belonged to a Jewish Christian group called the Elkisites. This group apparently put a large emphasis on purification rituals, perhaps similar to the Mandaeans, as well as many other Jewish and Christian groups at this time, but Mani was destined for other things, as he started receiving revelations at the age of 12 and then at 24, resulting in him leaving the Elkisites and instead starting his own religious movement. After this, he would spend the rest of his life doing very heavy missionary work in all across the Persian Empire as well as the Roman Empire. Uh, For a while, he also traveled to India and became quite popular there, even, according to some reports, being called Buddha by some people. One very significant thing about Mani, which sets him apart from a lot of the other founders or main figures of different religions, is that he actually wrote down a lot of texts. This was apparently a conscious effort to avoid making that same mistake as others had done, like the Buddha or Jesus, who didn't write themselves. And so he wanted to write many different books in order that there would be no misunderstandings uh, by later followers. Now, of course, you could argue that it's impossible for understandings to appear anyway. But it is also said that Mani was a great artist or painter, and indeed visual art would come to play an important part in Neomanichean religion, as we will see. Now, Somewhere around the year 242, Mani, while back in Persia, successfully preached his message and actually received the support of the sitting Sasanian king, Shapur I. This allowed Mani and his followers to spread even further and wider, as an endorsement from the king made things significantly easier, of course. What Mani preached was a unique and universal religion. He saw himself as the heir to great prophets like Jesus, uh, Zarathustra, and the Buddha, and his new religion as the pure or true versions, the most pure uh, form of these religions, that is Christianity, uh, Zoroastrianism, and Buddhism. But above all, Mani describes himself as an apostle of Jesus, and his connection to Jesus was particularly strong and significant. Connected to this is also the fact that Mani was identified as the so-called paraclete, which is mentioned in the New Testament in the Gospel of John, also sometimes called the helper. The paraclete is, according to many Christian readings, associated or identified with the Holy Spirit, but it should not be understood that Mani saw himself or was identified with the Holy Spirit in the sense of being part of the Trinity. The doctrine of the Trinity was not firmly established in Christianity at this time, and the Manichaeans did not adhere to this doctrine but seeing himself as the heir to these great prophets and preaching a religion that was supposedly the pure version of these other major religions, um, Mandi would often uh, present his religion in a way that was very approachable and, and easy to understand for the local population. So he could uh, speak to the local population and, and claim that their local tradition was often in harmony with his own, which was, of course, a very effective way of, of missionary work, of, of spreading his faith. So in the teachings of Manichaeism, we find many aspects of different religions that were popular in this region at the time. There are very strong influences from biblical and Abrahamic sources, of course, uh, but also very clear references to ideas in Zoroastrianism as well as in Buddhism. It also appears that the form that Manichaeism took in different regions depended somewhat on the um, sort of major religious traditions in that particular region. So Manichaeism, like all other religions, is of course, was constantly changing and evolving depending on new Uh, times and places, new cultural context. And so we can see that uh, Manichaeism in the more western parts of its spread, in the sort of Roman Empire, the western, Middle East, and North Africa, take on a much more sort of Judeo-Christian or Jewish-Christian form, while in the Central Asian region, the Zoroastrian and Buddhist influences are a lot more pronounced. But Mani's support by the Sasanian king was temporary. As soon as Shapur died, and after the short reign of his successor Hormuz I, the king Bahram took the throne and things started to change significantly. The Zoroastrian clergy had been strongly critical of Mani and his movement and called for very harsh measures against them. The new king ended official support for Manichaeism, and a great persecution started here. Mani himself was actually arrested and put in prison in the year either 276 or 277, and some sources claim that after only 26 days, he succumbed to the terrible conditions in prison and died. This marked the end of the life of the prophet Mani, but by no means was this the end of the religion that he started. He had been very successful, he and his followers, at spreading the religion into different parts of the world, and this only continued after he died. It spread across the Middle East to North Africa and even Spain. It spread to Georgia, Central Asia, India, and all the way to China. By the year 400, a bit more than 100 years after Mani's death, there were Manichaean communities in Syria, Palestine, Egypt, Arabia, Armenia, Rome and Spain, just to mention a few. Uh, In a very short amount of time, the religion had managed to spread to basically every corner of the known world, a feat that no other religion had managed before. Now, this is why some scholars have referred to Manichaeism as the first world religion in history. You can see why this may be the case. But Manichaeism, for most of its history, remained under very strong persecution. In Persia and Central Asia, they were strongly oppressed by the Zoroastrian clergy and by the Persian kings. The religion was basically forbidden. And in the west, the developing Christianity became also increasingly critical of the Manichaeans, and once they were in power, they would of course strongly persecute them as well. To the Christian polemical writers, the Manichaeans were either seen as a foreign Persian religion that had invaded the Christian lands. It was seen as a heretical movement within Christianity itself, neither of which was very good news. Interestingly, evidence from Kelis in Egypt, one of the archaeological sites, shows that there have been time periods when the Manichaeans and Christians, these are mainstream Christians, lived side by side, and that the Manichaeans, if given the question, would have most likely identified themselves as Christian. This shows us that things are a lot more complex than what is often assumed. The religious identity of the Manichaeans is a complicated question that can't be explained in very simple terms. We shouldn't, as many have done, simply say that Manichaeism is a form of Christian Gnosticism. Because not only is Gnosticism itself an arbitrary term that wasn't necessarily a unified community at all, but Manichaeism was also very different in significant ways to the theology expressed in those texts we often refer to as Gnostic. Even if there are many interesting similarities, of course, too. The great persecution that the Manichaeans faced in basically every part of the world that it existed is one of the reasons that the religion is basically extinct today. Things got a little easier after the Arab conquest and under the early Islamic uh, caliphates, but there were periods of persecution here as well. So even though the religion had appeared and spread in a very rapid pace and spread to large parts of the world, in just a few centuries it had all but disappeared. By the 11th century, the religion had more or less died out in the Middle East, in Persia and North Africa. It did, however, survive in southern China for a few more centuries, some say until around the 17th century, but since then it's been pretty quiet. It is very possible that there have been small communities surviving. There is, for example, a group on the website Reddit, where people interested in Manichaeism gather, and it appears that there are some still practicing it today, to some degree. So there may very well be people who still identify as Manichaeans, but there are so few of them that we can still basically call the religion extinct. And even if the religion itself isn't necessarily around anymore, it probably has had a great impact on other religions, other cultures. Uh, Being such a widely spread and popular religion in the late ancient period, uh, it must have in some way influenced the other currents that were happening at the time, including, of course, Christianity. Islam also developed in a region and time when Manichaeism was very much present, and so we can speculate also as to how much Manichaeism may have influenced that religion too. It's interesting that Mani is said to have called himself the Seal of the Prophets, much like what the Quran calls the Prophet Muhammad, but this comes from later Muslim writers, so we should probably take this with a grain of salt. But this leads us to that central question, what did the Manichaeans believe, and how did they practice their religion? As I've already mentioned, Mani saw himself as a universal prophet. He was the heir to Zarathustra, to the Buddha, and above all, to Jesus. So when we look at the beliefs of Manichaeism, we find traces of all of these different religions. One of the main characteristic features of the Manichaean theology and cosmology is a very strong dualism. The religion is so strongly associated with dualism that the word Manichaean has become a kind of shorthand word for anything that is strongly dualistic, even outside of the sphere of religion. But what this means, on a religious level, is that Mani and his followers saw the world as consisting of two essential forces, that of light or good, and that of darkness or evil. This is of course similar to some forms of Christianity, like what we call Gnosticism, but in particular there are strong similarities here with Zoroastrianism. And just like in Zoroastrianism, the Manichaeans divide world history into three stages. In the first stage, light and darkness are completely separated spheres. God, or the Father of Greatness, rules over the sphere of light, which consists of his attributes like purity, light, strength, wisdom, and the five elements of light, water, fire, air, and wind. The sphere of darkness is ruled by the King of Darkness and his five offspring. Here we also find five elements, smoke, darkness, fire, water, and wind. The second phase or era of creation is when the dark and light spheres come into contact. The darkness wants to infiltrate the light, but the father of greatness creates the mother of life, so-called, who in turn sends original man, which is a kind of spiritual form of man, to infiltrate the sphere of darkness and destroy it from the inside, like a Trojan horse, if you will. Once the king of darkness and his offspring are defeated, original man, together with the mother of life, create the universe from the bodies of these dark beings and the light that original man had sneakily placed within them. So, as a result, the universe that we know consists both of the stuff of darkness, that is, the bodies of these dark beings, which is mainly the material aspect of the world, and also the stuff of light, things like the human soul or the planets and stars in the sky. For the rest of the second phase, and into the third phase, which is the current one, the purpose of this whole existence is to separate the light from its dark material, in order to hopefully reach a complete separation of the two once again. This has been the purpose of all the previous prophets, Jesus, Buddha, Zarathustra, and now finally Mani, to remind humanity of the true source of the light in order that they may neglect their material body and all other aspects of life that is connected to the forces of darkness. Okay, are you with me so far? This is obviously a very complicated cosmology, even I have trouble uh, keeping it all together uh, sometimes, but this is the basic idea behind the, the dualism of the Manichaeans. The world is like a cleaning factory to separate the particles of light from the darkness. And in the practices of religion, we find traces of this scheme. In the microcosm of the human being, the same struggle takes place as in the macrocosm of the cosmos. So this means that we as human beings must also struggle to separate the light particles from the darkness within ourselves. Since Manichaeism has a rather negative attitude towards the, human, the body and the material world in general, as they are seen as being made from the stuff of darkness, the rules and, and practices of the Manichaeans may seem to be very strict. Mani instructed people to live very ascetic lives, to not lie, never kill any living being and to practice pacifism, not to eat any meat, not to drink alcohol and to live in complete celibacy, abstaining from all sexual and reproductive activity. Now, as strict as this may sound, it must be pointed out that not all Manichaeans were required to follow these rules. Instead, the community was divided into two general groups, the elect and the hearers. The elect were those who had taken the Manichaean vows and followed all the above rules very strictly, as well as praying and fasting very intensely. Their entire lives were dedicated to separating the light from darkness through their ascetical practice. Now, the hearers, on the other hand, were a kind of lay people. They weren't required to follow these rules to the letter. They could eat meat as long as they had not killed the animal themselves. They could, for example, also have sex within the context of a marriage and therefore also have children. But even though the rules weren't as strict for these hearers, they were still encouraged to follow them as much as they could. Having children, for example, was technically allowed, but it was considered ideal to not have them, as having children would continue the cycle of material darkness. Aside from these rules, all Manichaeans were also required to pray on a daily basis. The number of prayers is very hard to tell, but it seems that it may have been uh, three prayers a day, maybe four prayers a day. Uh, the times of day when the prayers uh, took place is also basically impossible to know for sure. But it seems that the Manichaeans may have adopted to the uh, mainstream practice or the, the most prominent practice in a certain region. So, for example, in later periods when the Manichaeans lived under Muslim rule, the prayer times may have been sort of adjusted to, to sync up with the prayer times of the Muslims. The Swedish scholar of religion, Jürgen Magnusson, has written an article on the food practices of the Manichaeans, which serves as an interesting example of how the relationship between the elect and the hearers functioned, and also gives us a look into some of the practices of the community in general. Since the elect were to live strictly pure lives, they were forbidden from using any kind of violence, even violence against plants or vegetation. This made it basically impossible for them to provide themselves with any food, so instead, during their daily meal, the hearers would provide them with the vegetarian food in a kind of ritual. The elect would then pray and bless the food and the person bringing it, which cleared the hearer from the charge of having used violence to get them the food. And then through their meal and their congestion system, the elect would then, because they live such holy and pure lives, release the light particles of the food from the dark and thus serve the cause of the world of light through this ritual meal. So this meal, or table, was a kind of exchange. The hearers brought food to the elect and was forgiven for their sins as a result, and the elect themselves used the food and meal as a way to help separate the light from the darkness. This is just a short summary and a few examples of the practices of the Manichaeans. Of course, research and scholarship is giving us more information as time goes by. Another somewhat characteristic aspect of Manichaeism is their prominent art, visual art. There are plenty of surviving Manichaean depictions of various scenes and cosmological schemes that are quite beautiful and dramatic. The Manichaeans used both the written word and visual art to convey its religious message, which is probably why we find so many examples like this. If you remember, it is also said that Mani himself was a great and accomplished painter and artist, so there may be a connection here as well. Sadly, as I've said, Manichaeism is basically extinct today, but it survives through the discoveries and information that archaeologists and scholars are bringing to light, as well as through the influence that Manichaeism may have had on religious traditions that survive to this day. It is a religion that can teach us a lot about the ancient Middle East and a religious context that was incredibly vibrant and influential. If you want me to make more about Manichaeism and explore in detail some of its more particular aspects, let me know in a comment and I'll see you next time.